Amen. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm Chris. Oh, hey. Thanks. What's up? <laughs> so I'm Chris. I, uh, I graduated like a year and a half ago from Amherst College, and I work with InterVarsity staff at Amherst. And um, honestly, it's, it's an honor to be able to preach at Mercy House and to get to talk about Jesus with you guys. Um, so I'm really excited. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we're going through the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy is situated in between the Jews being saved out of Egypt and the Jews being made a people in the promised land, a nation that's set apart and holy unto God. So we're right in the middle of God saving them and God establishing them as a new nation. And right in the middle of that, you have the book of Deuteronomy is a book of remembrance. It's the title of our sermon series where Moses is like telling, reminding them of their history and pointing forward to what's happening. So Robert's been using this illustration of a swing set where Moses is asking them to like look back at where they've been and who God has been to them before they swing forward into the promised land. Nifty, right? So the idea is that God has like shown himself powerfully saving him with signs and wonders, plagues in Egypt. They've seen God in a whirlwind of fire. It's back here. And the hope is that by remembering that, they would move forward into the promised land with confidence in who God is and who they are as a result. And so the book of Deuteronomy, and specifically Deuteronomy chapter 5 and the Ten Commandments, is right in the middle of that. Um, And before we dig in, we're dealing with God's law. And Robert uh, talks a little bit about God's law, like introduction to what commandments are last week. And just um, one of the, the hopes as we study Deuteronomy and as we look into the Old Testament is that we'd be developing skills for how to interpret the Old Testament. And so here are some just really practical things to deal with God's law that you should know. Uh, there, are, there are three categories of, of law that exist in the Old Testament. Three categories, ceremonial, civil, and ethical. The first category is, like I said, ceremonial. And those are laws about like what to wear, how to wash yourself, what to eat that God lays out. Um, so like all those laws about how to, how to like comport yourself, uh, or like, yeah, what to wear, what to wash, how to be clean, the unclean and clean distinction is held in those laws, and also how to relate to God in the temple. So like how to offer sacrifices, um, how to atone for sin. And those are things that are laid out in the, in the ceremonial law. Those are not things that we do anymore because we don't relate to God in the same way that the Israelites did back then. Um, so the Israelites had to offer continual sacrifices in order to atone for sin. Um, we trust that God has once and for all atoned for sin in the person of Jesus on the cross as a perfect sacrifice. And so the ceremonial washing stuff and like the temple etiquette stuff is not things that we follow anymore. And so if you're reading the Old Testament and you read ceremonial law, you need to understand that that system was fulfilled in Christ. Um, and yeah, the, the, the point of all those, the rituals and the cleansing and all that was to point forward to the day when it would be fully accomplished in Christ. And you need to see that Christ is the fulfillment of those ceremonial laws or you'll miss the point. That's not my idea or my thought process. That's in the book of Hebrews. Um, if you're interested in that, check it out. Um, that's ceremonial law. The second category of law that we find in, in the Old Testament is civil law. And the reason that there are civil laws is that God was saving them out of Egypt, like we said, and establishing them as a geopolitical state with God as their king. And so some of the laws in the Old Testament in Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy are like legal structures to hold together this, this civilization, the nation of Israel with God as king. We obviously don't follow those rules or those laws anymore because 
America is not God's kingdom. Amen? Right? Yeah. Um, our president is not God. Amen. Um, so, yeah, so if you're going to read the, the civil laws in the Old Testament, you have to understand that God's long-term intention was never to save the world through a geopolitical state. God's kingdom is not about one nationality. Um, it's actually, it's always been his intention to save a people of every tribe, nation, and tongue unto himself. And so God's kingdom um, in like the, the, the people, the people of God's kingdom are those who have submitted their hearts to the reign of Christ. And so it's a scattered universal nation that God is weaving together. Cool, not a geopolitical state. So that's why we don't follow the civil laws in the Old Testament. And the third category, oh, also again, not my idea. That's in the book of Galatians. It's in Galatians 3. Check it out. Um, and then, so that's ceremonial, civil, and the last category is ethical laws. And these are laws that are God's heart for like moral, yeah, moral rules. And um, the same rules that apply ethically to the Jews in the Old Testament apply to us. Um, so the, the Ten Commandments is in that category of ethical laws. And so that's why we're going to deal with the Ten Commandments as like very applicable, literal laws that are for us now. Um, those laws stand forever. And Robert talked a little bit last week about how those laws are meant uh, to, to be wisdom and wholeness, uh, to give us a society that is like good, um, and also to be a witness to surrounding peoples that our God is good. So um, the Israelites were told to live this way because it's wise living. It would be healthy for them and give them wholeness, but also so that interiorly, or yeah, like communally, they would be like, our God is good, and that external nations would see them and be like, their God is good. Um, so that's, that's what the moral laws are for. Um, the Ten Commandments are in that category, and um, one way that you can know that the Ten Commandments are in that category is that the Ten Commandments are all but two specifically explicitly reinstated in the New Testament. And so these ethical laws that are in the Old Testament are, are most often explicitly reinstated in the New Testament. Um, and that for the Ten Commandments, that's true of all but two. The two that are not explicitly reinstated are one, the second commandment, which says do not make any carved image and bow down to it or worship it. And the reason that it's not is because it was prohibited for the Israelites to make a carved image of God because they'd never seen him before. All they had was a voice and some like rules and they'd seen signs of him, but they'd never seen him. That's not true of us. We actually have seen the face of God in the person of Jesus. And so we don't have to make images. We actually know what God looks like. Uh, we know that God took on flesh as a Galilean Jew. And um, so yeah, the, the Bible says that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so the restriction on images is no longer applicable. Um, and then similarly, the Sabbath is, 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 so that's the first one that's not explicitly reinstated in the New Testament is images. The second one is the Sabbath. And the reason that it's not explicitly reinstated is because it's repurposed. The, um, the, the Jews of Jesus' day, the religion of Jesus' day, had so contorted the Sabbath that they had made it into a rule um, that, that Jesus interpreted. This. He said, you've made, you've made it the case that man exists for the Sabbath, and that's never how it was supposed to be. The Sabbath is meant to be a gift for you. And so actually that's getting back to the heart of what the Sabbath is defined as in the, in the Old Testament. So Jesus doesn't just say, yeah, keep doing the Sabbath. He says, no, you've been doing it wrong. And the way to do it is that the Sabbath is a gift, a time for you to rest and recognize that God is good and that you don't run the world. So that still exists for us, the Sabbath. Does that make sense? So as you're reading, it's really important to be able to categorize this law that I'm reading. Is it ceremonial, civil, or ethical? 
because we don't follow the ceremonial or civil anymore, but we do follow the ethical laws. Cool? Ten Commandments are in the ethical category, so we're going to deal with them very uh, literally and realistically. And um, without further ado, the Ten Commandments. So I get to preach on all Ten Commandments, which could be a 24-hour sermon. Um, it won't be. We've already done one service, but, uh, so it's been about that long. But um, we all come into the room with, um, with presuppositions about what the Ten Commandments say, with understandings of what they mean for us. And actually, like, for our culture, generally, the Ten Commandments sometimes serve as like, the definition of religion. It's like, this is what Western religion or Christianity or Judaism, this is what it's all about, is following this list of ten rules. You'll see it like in the back of churches. It's like, these are the ten things. That's, that's it. We follow these ten rules. And that, that's not the case. Um, or you might think, uh, you might look at it and you say, okay, uh, I follow that one, that one. I definitely messed up on that one. Um, I kind of half messed up on that one. And you go through as a checklist and you say, okay, 85%. That's passing. That's a B plus, maybe a B. God passes me and I'm good. And that's also not what the Ten Commandments are for. Um, I want to explicitly say that. Um, or you might be new to church or not um, like familiar with the Ten Commandments and you might say, I don't care if the Ten Commandments are wise or like, good or, or accepted mostly. I don't really want to do that because that sounds boring. And the God of Christianity is just a rule maker who demands that his people have zero fun. And again, that's not what we're talking about. So I want to invite you as we dive into the Ten Commandments to suspend your previous notions of what the Ten Commandments are. Uh, can we make a, a commitment together to look at the text, to see what the Ten Commandments say, and to let that inform our opinions rather than any preconceived notions that we're bringing in? Cool? Let's pray that God would open the text to us and teach us. Cool? Join me in praying. God, we thank you that your word lives and that we have it. God, I thank you for the gift of your word and the wisdom that comes from it. I want to invite you to pray for the person on your right and left that God would encounter them in this time. Would you also pray for yourself that God would speak to you? Lord, help me Help me speak, God. I, I pray that, that you would protect me from saying anything that's not from you. Lord, we know that you say that your word is the sword of the Spirit. And Father, we ask that you would send your Spirit in Jesus' name into this place to wield the sword against us, God. We yield ourselves to you. Lord, I pray that you would cut us even by your word. We trust you and we love you and we ask all things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the Ten Commandments. I'm going to start in uh, Deuteronomy 5, verse 4. If you have a Bible, flip it open. And um, if you don't, share one or there's more Bibles under the, under the seats. So starting in verse 4. And um, pay attention here to how the whole story of the Ten Commandments starts. This is amazing. Ready for this? This is Moses recounting what happened on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, same mountain, when God gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. And Moses says, 
the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the foundation for the most important set of rules in maybe all of human society. This one moment when out of the fire and a shaking mountain that's so, trembling that the Israel, so, so fearful that the Israelites tremble and say, we can't go up there. And the first words are, I am the Lord your God. who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This word, the Lord your God, is Yahweh Elohim. It's the name that God has communicated to Moses in Exodus 3. This is the, the personal name of the Lord of the universe. You know, they've, they've seen God in a, like, act in a whirlwind of fire. They've seen God split the Red Sea, save them from the Egyptians. And now there's fire and smoke, and the whole mountain is trembling. And his first words are, Here's my name. My name is Yahweh Elohim. I'm the creator and savior of this people. And he says, I'm the Lord, your God. I'm for you. Here's my name. Now you know it. Now you can call out to me. You are my people. See the intimacy of that? Intimacy and power interwoven like no time, any other time in history. It's so personal. I am Yahweh Elohim. I am the Lord, your God. I'm the one who saved you. So he starts by saying, here's who I am. I'm your God. And here's who you are. You're my people. I'm the one who saved you with a mighty hand out of slavery. I saw you in your slavery. I knew. I heard your cries. And I've brought you out. Now listen. And the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. I think that would have made a lot of sense to the Israelites. Trembling mountain, fire and smoke. They've just seen him save them. And he's like, worship me only. I think they're like, okay, yes, that makes a lot of sense. We'll do that. Um, and then so from there, that's the foundation of the whole Ten Commandments is this like power, power and relationship. God saying, I, loved, I love you. I've saved you. You know my name now. Worship me alone. And then the overarching, or like the trend of the Ten Commandments is you have two more commandments about worship and relationship to God. So you have don't make carved images and bow down to them. Don't take the name of Yahweh Elohim in vain. And then two commandments about life in the home and work. This is Sabbath and honoring your, your father and mother. Four about social life with others. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness or lie. And then lastly is do not covet. That's like regulating your heart desire towards other people, the things that you want, your emotions. And so just some summary statements about the Ten Commandments. Notice that it starts with relationship, right? And then quickly you see that it's socially pervasive, right? It, 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 God is concerned with your worship, your home, your work life, your like, in social rules for society. Don't lie, don't steal from each other, don't murder. And then notice it also talks about coveting, right? So that's like your personal thoughts and emotions, your deepest feelings. The point is that there's no part of life that God's not claiming ownership of. I'm the Lord your God who saved you, and I care about your worship and your home life and your friendships, and your social interactions. All of it is under his jurisdiction. It's socially pervasive, these laws. The other observation is that it's 
personally penetrating, socially pervasive, personally penetrating. God cares about their hearts. It's so much more than just a moral checklist, right? It's getting at their deepest heart motivations, not just a list of rules. It gets at the attitudes behind their obedience. Covetousness in particular demonstrates that. Uh, God cares about what they want. And so actually one way to look at, or again, not my idea, right? So if you look at Jesus in Matthew 5, he's, he's sort of preaching on the Ten Commandments to Jews who would have known the law. And he, uh, it's this, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Check it out. Awesome. Maybe the most famous sermon of all time. But um, Jesus preaching on the Ten Commandments, and he says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, quoting the Ten Commandments. He says, you've heard that it was said to not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, that the Ten Commandments are far more than just don't commit adultery. It's far more than just a moral set of rules. It's God saying every heart inclination, every desire that you have is supposed to be submitted to my lordship. And God knows the thoughts and inclinations of our hearts. And after, or just actually a couple of verses before Jesus talks about adultery in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. The list is so much more penetrating than just a moral checklist. God cares about your heart, cares about how you feel about other people. That's in his jurisdiction. And actually, so maybe, this, maybe that's obvious, or maybe it is obvious, but that is totally unique among ancient legal documents. No other king, or even like old religious things, no one, you can't legislate that. How would you regulate the thoughts and inclinations of a nation? But God is setting up the founding documents of his nation. He says, your hearts. I care about your innermost thoughts, the things that you long for. They need to be submitted to my lordship. It's not about moral performance. It's so much more than that. Let that sink in for a second, actually. So this is, like I said, Yahweh Elohim, a name that communicates life and power and intimacy. Speaking from a shaking mountain, covered in smoke with fire. It says, when he spoke to you out of the fire. I can't even imagine what that looked like. And he says, worship me only, first commandment. Only me, out of the fire. And the people are like, okay, that makes sense. And then he says, and don't make any symbolic representations of me and bow down to them because you'll get it wrong and I'm the real thing. Don't make counterfeits. And they're like, okay, that sounds good too. And then he says, and don't take my name in vain because I'm all powerful. And they're like, okay, yeah, that, that also makes a lot of sense. And then he says, rest one out of seven days so that you don't get a big head and think that you run the world. I'm in charge. And they're like, okay, cool. And then God says, honor your parents. And the kids are like, okay. And the parents are like, okay, this is awesome, yeah. And then he says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not covet. You get the sense that he's like, don't worry about comparing your spouse to another spouse or your car or your farm or your house. Believe that I'm going to trust, like trust that I'm good. Trust that I'll provide for you. Don't worry about comparisons like that. So I think, yeah, particularly this 10th commandment gets to the core of that. There's a covenant, covetousness is sort of the opposite of thankfulness or a gratitude or generosity. A covetousness is saying the things I have aren't enough. The things that I've been given, 
actually like aren't satisfying. I need more. I need what that guy has or what that girl has. And, um, and what God is saying is like he's actually really deeply concerned that you know and you trust that he's good, that he'll provide for you and for the Israelites. You feel the tenderness of that? In the midst of a, speaking out of the fire in a shaking mountain, one of God's concerns, top 10 concerns, is that you trust that he'll provide, that he's good. Such tenderness. God has saved them, set them apart, told them his name, told them to call out to him, spoken out of the fire, tells them that he cares. That's his message. He cares about every aspect of their life. And he wants the best for them. He's giving them wise rules. And he cares that they trust in him. So there's a deep intimacy here. There's also crazy power, right? Like absurd authoritative claims. Not absurd, but bold authoritative claims. God is saying all of it. All of like socially pervasive, everything. Deep into your, in your darkest moments of your heart and like the secret things that no one cares about, all of that's submitted to me. This guy named Abraham Cooper, I think it's Cooper, not really sure how you pronounce it, but Abraham Cooper, he says, in summarizing this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Let me read that again. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. All of it is for God. It makes that abundantly clear. He's claiming authority over every social interaction, every inclination and desire of your heart. That's the contract that God's setting up with them. That's the covenant that he's making. I am the Lord your God who saved you, and everything is for me. Everything you think and feel, everything you do, is meant to be in service to me. Someone in the room, might, you might be new to church, and you might be thinking right now, I knew it. I knew that church was all about rules and laws and I was going to come and sit and the guy was going to tell me how I'm a bad person. And how, that's not what I'm doing. Um, and actually, like, uh, the Christian perspective on freedom is a sort of counterintuitive freedom. So Robert talked about how receiving commands is hard for our culture. It's not something that we like to be, we don't like to be told what to do, especially from a God that you may not know um, and you're hearing, like, it's actually really important, even, like, your thoughts, not just your moral actions. Um, and... I get that. I don't, I'm not excited about telling you something that's really countercultural or offensive to you, but this is the law of God. And this is, this is what God says is like, he has jurisdiction over every part of your heart. And so the, the, the freedom, well, so um, the law of God is meant to give freedom. And um, the best way I've, I know how to describe it is freedom like a violin player in an orchestra. Um, so you may have been to an orchestra, you may not. You're probably familiar with the concept of an orchestra, right? Everyone plays their own instrument, uh, but everyone has a score that they're meant to play along with, right? So if you imagine, like, the first chair violinist sitting there, she's got violin, she's got her, her music, sheet music in front of her. She plays it. And if, in the name of self-determination or freedom, the violinist were to stand up and, like, play something else, it would ruin the song, right? It would ruin the orchestra, it would also not be what she's supposed to be doing, right? It would be a disaster. Um, and so, but there's a big difference between a professional violinist, like a master violinist playing a song, and someone who's very good at violin just picking up a song and playing it from sight, right? And so the, the, the 
picture of freedom in accordance with God's law is one of the master violinists taking and being familiar with, playing a song for decades, and knowing every turn in it, and knowing when the crescendos come, and knowing the heart of the, of the song, how the emotional shifts of it. And from that place of extreme familiarity and technique, there's actually great freedom. If you listen to a first-time violinist playing a song um, versus a, a master violinist playing the same song, if the master violinist has played it for 10 years, it's totally different. The master violinist, within the confines of the music, has freedom to change vibrato or change a crescendo from like a slow ramp up to a sharp spin onto the higher sound. And so there's, within the confines of music, there's actually a great freedom of expression that turns something mundane into something beautiful. And so what, what Christian freedom is, according to the law, is living wisely within the confines of God's law in, in, in ways that allow the violinist to flourish and for the violinist to play in a beautiful orchestra. So this is, it's, it's personal flourishing, but it's also in harmony, in key with the grander song that's happening. And that's what God's inviting us into when he gives us his law. It's beautiful. That's what the Ten Commandments are for. Based on relationship and for the sake of human flourishing and filling the role that you were actually created for. I would argue that's freedom. So like I said, I'm, I'm trying to preach on all Ten Commandments, and that's not possible. So that was overarching. That's the Ten Commandments. That's what they're for. Uh, that's what it looks like to follow them. That's the kind of thing that God's inviting you into when he asks you to follow the Ten Commandments, or when he commands that you follow the Ten Commandments. Um, but in order to get a, a deeper look at our hearts and the ways that we confront the Ten Commandments, we're just going to dive into one of them. Um, we're going to dive into the first one, idolatry. God says, you should have no other gods before me. And um, the reason that we're choosing idolatry to dive into really deeply is a few reasons. One is that it's first. So like, start at the very beginning, a very good place to start or something like that. Um, the other reason is that it's actually true that you can't break the other nine commandments until you've broken the first, or without breaking the first. That actually, if you break the other nine commandments, you've already broken the first. And I'll explain that in a second. Um, but the third reason is that, uh, again, not my idea, the Apostle Paul, when talking about sin in his, in his epistles later on in the New Testament, he relates all of these sins to idolatry. He says that immorality is idolatry, impurity is idolatry, greed is idolatry, covetousness. But all, all these things stem from idolatry at their very core. So that's, that's sort of, um, so the idea is that we're going to get to the root of, of sin, which is idolatry. And to define idolatry, um, it's building your identity on anything other than God. Soren Kierkegaard is a, a Danish philosopher and defines sin biblically as building your identity on anything other than God. It's, it's the anchor of your heart not being set where it's supposed to be. So this, this means that sin is, in the Bible, described not only as doing bad things, but making good things into ultimate things. You see, it's like uh, when the heart twists something good into something that it's not supposed to be and worships it. So, um, so think, yeah, sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than God. So it's anything that you're seeking, from which you're seeking something that only God could give you. So if you're seeking acceptance, love, significance, and meaning, from, and or meaning from anything other than God, that's an idol. Those are things that only God can give you. It means that you're treating something that's not God as though it were God. 
Does that make sense? Making anything but God the central affection of your heart. So we're naturally very blind to our own idols. And so um, one way to try to attack what idols you're worshiping is to ask questions like, what concerns you most? What affects you emotionally most? Or what is the main source of your anxiety? What do you worry, plan, and think about most? Or fill in the blank. If blank were gone, life really wouldn't be worth living. Or if I didn't have blank, I'd be ruined. If blank happened, life wouldn't be worth it. I couldn't go on. Fill in the blank for whatever it might be for you. Um, Some common idols in our time, in our culture, include idols of pleasure or comfort. Idols of success in work or academically. Idols of a relationship. Either with a spouse or girlfriend, boyfriend. Idols of family. Idols of family values. Idolatry of acceptance. So to be totally honest with you, idol, the idol of acceptance is me. Um, I, as I've been preparing for this, God has been doing this thing in me. And like three nights ago, I was destroyed. I was in a dark place. Realizing that this is the primary idol that I give my worship to at times, is the idol of acceptance. And um, if you're like me, that means that you're constantly concerned with image management. It means that you're, you're living for the nod of approval from important people, from people whose opinions you care about. It means that you're constantly replaying past conversations in your head and thinking about what they said and what you should have said and how you could have said this differently to make them smile. You really should have come up with that quick comeback. It means even dreaming about making important people proud. Interestingly, it means that one glance or disparaging remark can unravel your whole day. Because the truth is that you're actually, you're only as secure as that which is most important to you. And so if approval is what's most important to you, you're only as secure as the nods of approval from the crowd. So you end up not standing for anything except for that which is already popular. And then the final stage of that, of living for the idol of approval, you can picture in your head is the guy in the bar who's like 70 and he's still talking about how he made partner at age 30, the youngest ever in the firm, or that touchdown he threw when he was 18, when they won state. It's like, dude, living for that moment of the crowd's approval, the cheer, building your identity around that. Do you know him? Do you know that guy? Are you that guy? Are you that woman? That's idolatry of approval. Another one that's popular in our culture is idolatry of some social cause. You begin to build your identity around progress towards some political or social end. Some political or social goal. All your hope and optimism and identity is focused towards this one end. And actually, in our culture, it's easy to be fueled by a a culture that loves to cheer for social champions. And so hearing the crowd cheer for you, you just continue to chase after this thing and further bolster your identity as the achiever in this direction. 
And then you start to be fueled by the haters, the naysayers, because you identify as the opponents of your opponents and because it means that you're making progress and ruffling feathers. So even naysayers can't stop you from building your approval or building your identity on this. And so you divide the world into good and bad and you demonize all those opponents of your cause. Is that you? Interestingly, in the final stage of this worship, even if you've achieved the goal, you'd be ruined. Because you're always on edge, looking for confrontation, looking for someone to confront about this thing, because your identity is based on fighting for some change. And the final irony is that you're actually defined by your enemies. Right? If they didn't exist, then neither would you. Your whole identity is wrapped up in opposition to something. Idolatry of some social cause. Another one that might be relevant for you as someone who comes to church is idolatry of morality or religion. Uh, some like, list of rules, some set of standards that you hold yourself to, a code of life. Because we're a religious bunch, we're often at risk of uh, idol blindness to this specific thing. So some ways that you might make idol, an idol out of religion and morality um, or specifically religion, is trusting in doctrine. Trusting in, in, in like clean, articulated statements of doctrine. Like, this makes me. I've studied this. And we're the group who knows this phrase. We're the group who has it right. Another one for a church that's pretty popular is uh, idolatry of success of our church. The popularity of Mercy House in the Valley. You start championing this, and then the outsiders become obstacles unless they get on board, and you can't love people well. You demonize the outsiders. Or on a more personal level, um, yeah, you hold up, like I go to church every week, and I go to small group every week, um, and I know John 3.16, backwards, forwards, and in Spanish, and you think that, that achieving this set of standards will save you. Is that you? churchgoer. The final stage of this one is also another one we're familiar with. It's the bitter, self-righteous, judgmental person. Usually a lifelong member of a church. A church that doesn't preach the gospel of grace. You set up moral standards, and if you achieve them, you'll be self-righteous and cruel to those who haven't lived up to your standards. And if you don't achieve them, your guilt will be devastating. Tim Keller writes in Counterfeit Gods, he says, if you center your life and identity on your spouse or your partner, you'll be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. If you center your life and identity on your family and children, you'll try to live your life through your children until they resent you or they have no self of their own, and at worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. If you center your life and identity on your work and your career, you'll be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you'll lose family and friends. If your career goes poorly, you'll develop deep depression. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up in your life. If you center your life and identity on pleasures, gratification, and comfort, you'll find yourself getting addicted to something. You'll become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. 
If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you'll be constantly overly hurt by criticisms and thus always losing friends. You'll fear confronting others and therefore will be a useless friend. It's trite to say that the things we own end up owning us, but it is true that the things we worship end up making us. They end up driving us. And actually, you will become like the things that you worship. Whatever your primary idol is, it's fighting for all of your heart. And eventually, you'll have to give up your life to give it. So as, as natural idol makers... We're always giving our lives in service of some supreme objective. Some supreme satisfaction. And they eat us alive. They demand our lives. The way that any addiction works is that it simplifies and dominates your life. Right? So if you're a workaholic and you're like, your idol is success, everything becomes subservient to that one goal. So you end up ditching your family or like working long hours and not living for them well. Um, and then ultimately, yeah, you end up doing unethical things in order to fuel success. Everything becomes subservient. Keller summarizes by saying, therefore, everyone is in covenant service to a Lord that works its will through our bodies. Our idols are driving us. You may have heard of um, David Foster Wallace. He's an Amherst grad from a while ago. Uh, I think like 06, I don't know, a while ago. Um, Actually, some professors on campus still know him. He wrote the book Infinite Jest. Extremely wise guy, not a Christian, but he gave a speech at Kenyon College in like 2008, I think, called What is Water? You can Google it. Um, and in the speech, he says, in the, day-to-day life, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Because your life will be given in service to some supreme idol. Everybody worships. He goes on, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom the freedom to be lords of our own tiny, skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. That's the freedom that the world offers. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny, skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of creation. That's the freedom that your idols will give you. That's not freedom. That's slavery. Just spinning around in our heads with anxiety, not able to sleep. Everything subservient to some idol. It's slavery. It's just unconscious slavery. So the question is, what's enslaving you? What idol are you sub- subconsciously giving yourself to in your daily life and in your thought process? What causes you anxiety at night? What is that supreme objective that your life is in service to? And the thing is, this takes conscious self-examination because we're naturally blind to these things and create them in our hearts. And the irony is that as we try to set our own agenda and live for what we want, we find ourselves in unconscious bondage, swirling deeper and deeper into some bondage. That's not freedom. The good news of the gospel 
is that in the pantheon of gods in our world, vying for your attention and begging you to give you their lives, there's one God who stands out in stark contrast. There's one God who in the, in the Old Testament says, I am the Lord, your God. I'm for you. My name is Yahweh Elohim, and I give life and not death. I give freedom and not slavery. That's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I came to set the captives free. I came for those who are sick and in need of a doctor. So the gospel is that Jesus lived perfectly in accordance with the law. He fulfilled the Ten Commandments perfectly. But then he suffered and died the death that an idolater deserved. The death that you and I deserve for being idolaters, for offending God with false worship. And the final message of the gospel is that if we believe in Christ, we get his sacrifice. And so while every other God, well, every other God in the pantheon of God is saying, give me your life and I'll give you something. Or you're going to have to like die to get success. You're going to have to like make your life subservient to some objective. Your life for mine. That's what, God, that's what these false gods say. God says, my life for yours. Jesus lays down his life for us. He pours out his life for us. He's the only God who says, my life for yours. The, the, the truth of the gospel is that, that Jesus takes our sin away, that he pays the punishment. He died a death that idolatry deserved, but he also perfectly fulfilled the law, and we get accredited his righteousness. This is called the great exchange. So where our sin is placed on Christ and paid for, and his righteousness is given to us, such that when God looks on us, he doesn't judge us according to what we've done. He judges us according to what Christ has done. Realize the implications. That's called imputed righteousness, and it's an enormous doctrine. It's huge. Because just as you can't break the other nine commandments without first breaking idolatry, when your heart is fully captivated by this good God who gives life rather than taking it, the other nine start to fall into place. So here's what I mean. This is Christian freedom. This is, this is the same as the Ten Commandments. It's not a different thing. God saves them out of slavery and then gives them rules to follow. And it's in response to God's grace, this is, how, this is how we should live, right? So God says, I am the Lord your God who saved you out of Egypt. Here's how you should then live. In the same way, God says, I have counted you righteous in Christ. Your sin is atoned for. There's no condemnation for you. And I see you as fully righteous. And now this is how you should live. Um, and actually, it's only after we know God's gracious salvation that we could ever become the kinds of people who fulfill the Ten Commandments. Hear this. Once you start, once the gospel has a hold on your heart and you start to see that I'm a sinner who didn't deserve this, but God has given me righteous, you become the kind of person who fulfills the Ten Commandments. So in response to God's grace, we start to naturally fulfill these things. The first commandment, have no other gods before me. When you see that the Creator God died for you because of his great love for you, you don't give your life or your love or your worship for lesser things in idolatry. When your heart is captivated by his sacrifice, you give your life to him and worship supremely. You don't seek other things in idolatry, or you don't seek to make created gods out of lesser things and worship them, because you fully trust in the power and goodness of the God who saves you, which means you won't cry out to his name in vain, because you know that he's mighty to save. That's from Zephaniah. When you see that God is mighty to save and working all things together on a cosmic scale in order to communicate his goodness, then you, then you realize you're not the Lord of your universe, and it means that you can rest on the Sabbath without anxiety, and you're fulfilling the fourth commandment. And when God graciously adopts you into his everlasting family and becomes your true and perfect father, then you can honor your parents as they should be, not as saviors, but as parents, as human sinners. And you expect sin, so you won't have bitterness for them. 
because you know that sinners should pale in comparison as parents to your perfect father. So it's in contrast to God's goodness that we can truly honor our parents and fulfill the fifth commandment. In fact, the overflow of God's unwarranted acceptance and forgiveness for you enables you to approach all people with forgiveness and grace and without harboring anger. God's inconceivably abundant love so satisfies your heart that you won't search after other lovers. Adultery doesn't become attractive anymore because you found such a satisfying love. And when you're struck to the core by the truth that you were, while you were still running from him and spurning God's love, he provided everything you need for you to be safe and secure and saved, then you won't long for self-preservation, filled with anxiety and jealousy. You no longer need to steal to get what you need or deceive to protect your image because you've been counted righteous by the only judge whose opinion really matters. And your heart will overflow with thankfulness rather than covetousness. You see, the gospel frees us from the inclination to self-preservation or to hoarding and covetousness. So the Ten Commandments is, yes, a set of rules to follow, but primarily it's more like a description of a type of life you live when you realize that your God loves you and has provided everything you need to save you. It's the type of life that you lead when you realize God has purchased your life for his own. It's the life you live when you understand that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for you because you're in Christ Jesus. It's the way you naturally live when you've already been declared righteous, when Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. The good news of salvation from Christ gives you the strength to live with joy and thankfulness rather than endless self-preservation and competition. And you find yourself that you're, you find that you're fulfilling the law. That's freedom. Freedom from the need to be self-preserving. Freedom from the need to steal what you need. Freedom to be grateful for all that you have. Freedom is found in the grace of God. There's that, that Hillsong song. It says, my, life, my heart beating, my soul breathing, I found my life when I laid it down. Then you get to be a part of the beautiful orchestra. A part of the song that God is inviting you to play along with. In Matthew 16, 25, it says, He who tries to save his life will lose it, but he who gives up his life will find it. If you cling to your rights and try to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. If you surrender your life to Christ, he'll carry you to freedom. So salvation in Christ and submission to his lordship is the only way to true freedom. Only the gospel frees from these things. So typically when we approach religion, um, we, we see it as a dichotomy between I can either be free or I can follow Jesus. But do you hear in the text, that's not what this is saying. This is saying actually something far more uh, compelling and actually something that like, requires response. It's saying there's, there's freedom in Christ or death in idolatry. It means that you either worship the God who gives life or you die in service to other idols. This is a true story. Um, Harriet Tubman freed a ton of slaves um, out of Maryland and on multiple trips, and every trip she carried a small pistol with her. And that was in part from, for protection from slave catchers, but it was also because every once in a while a faint-hearted slave would be scared of running away and want to go back to slavery, um, hoping that maybe the master would like like just want another worker or welcome them back in or something. But Harriet Tubman knew that's not the reality. When you run back after trying to escape to a plantation, things didn't go well. And it usually meant death. 
And so on multiple occasions, Harriet Tubman had to pull out the pistol and point it at the slave, the runaway, the human, and say, it's freedom or death. You come with me or I'll shoot. Because it's not, it's not cruel. She knew what was awaiting if the slave turned back. And she knew what was ahead. It was just a, a reality, making it very clear. There's only two options here. Freedom or death. And you have the option to choose right now. Um, yeah, it means, it means stop living for the slavery of performing in your church or like making your church a, a better group or the popularity of your community. Stop living primarily for your family or that relationship. Stop living for your work. Stop giving yourself for the approval of your surroundings and turn to Christ who gives his life to you, who offers real freedom. Take hold of Christ and let the gospel of grace give you the strength to crush your idols. You see, it's an unnerving challenge to Christians and, and religious types because it means that we have to repent even of the reasons we did good things. That's especially true for me. I do a lot of things out of trying to make myself better. And the gospel means that I have to repent even of my desire to want to save myself. You have to repent of your religious gains. So, but the core of the message is that Christian or non-Christian, God wants your heart. And he actually died to tell you that he wants it and to offer relationship to you. He deserves nothing less than your entire worship. He is Yahweh Elohim, who is the God of all creation who saves if you're a Christian and you've been following God for a while and your life doesn't look like it's being played in key with the Ten Commandments, this means that you actually, it's not a behavioral issue that you have. It's a worship issue. Because if your heart was truly set on God, if you were fully fulfilling the first commandment, the other nine would, would fall into place. This means that as we sin, we have to confront not just the behavior, but the motivation behind it, right? So as Christians, what are we worshiping? And as non-Christians in the room today, the choice before you is freedom or death. Will you take the freedom that Christ offers as he poured out his life for you? Because he died so that you don't have to and to free you from false worship. So we're, we're going to take communion and um, for a number of reasons. One is because personally, it's a statement saying, Christ, I accept your life for mine. Uh, it's actually saying, uh, communicating desperation, I need the grace that Jesus provides in order to have the strength to crush idols in my life. So we're literally being nourished by the grace of the gospel as we take communion. And then corporately, it's also a corporate admission of desperation that we need grace, that we can't save ourselves, that if we're just doing religion here, it won't help. If we're just trying to do moral management, it won't help. What we need is an atoning sacrifice for our sin and grace that frees us from idolatry. So if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, the way we do communion is we have communion servers come up and they'll be here and here. And if you're on this side, you'll come down the aisle, get your bread and your cup and head back around. And the same is true on this side of the aisle and back around. You can take it whenever you want. Um, and we invite you to do that out of admission of desperation that you need the grace that Christ offers. And if you're not a Christian today, we ask that you not take communion um, unless you want to say, I'm desperate and I need Christ for salvation. Um, so don't take communion. We, we actually invite you to take Christ. Take him, take him up on his offer that he gives life and frees from idolatry, frees from the slavery of other gods. 
that's the choice before us is freedom or death. And um, yeah, I invite you to choose freedom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the most high God and that you have cared to know us and to communicate your intimacy with us, God, to communicate that you want to be with us, to endure great hardship even, to make it possible that we could call out to your name, that we, we say Elohim and you hear. We say Jesus and we know that you listen. Lord, I ask that, uh, that you would remind us of the grace of the gospel, that you would strengthen us to crush idols in our lives out of realization that, that your grace is good, that you have saved us and that we have no good apart from you. Lord, we trust you, and we love you, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.